what I'm looking at right now is the tortoise underneath um, a bush. He's in the shade right now. Uh, it's kind of at the bottom, so to any anybody else, he might look like a rock, but he's a little bit rounder and smoother than any of the other rocks around here. So that's why he kind of popped out to me. Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Pelicanus highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field, to make right the wrongs of our past, and to show how people have and still are making a monumental difference in our world. And we want to tell their stories. So we're here to show that not only is there something that can be done, it is being done by dedicated scientists who have made conservation their life, and that we can find optimism through science. We're proud to announce that we have partnered with the National Park Service to celebrate their centennial, 100 years of America's best idea. That means that every episode this year will highlight a national park, focusing on the people and programs that are dedicated to conserving these beautiful parks all across the United States. This episode is about desert tortoises of Joshua Tree National Park. So we were led through the park by biologist Michael Vamstead and Kristen Lalumiere for a field work day where we were searching for tortoises in their project. So that means that all of our interviews were done in the field. So there may be some wind noise, car sounds, and other background noises that you may hear. Also, we took many photos of our time at Joshua Tree. And if you'd like to see the tortoises we met or see the wide expanse of beautiful desert that is the park, you can find these photos on our website at pelicanus.org or on our social media sites as well at Pelicanus Radio. Now the two of them showed us a great day where we got to see and handle wild tortoises. But before they tell us about tortoises at Joshua Tree, let's meet them first. So here's Michael. A couple times I just came out west and just fell in love with the mountains, fell in love with the biodiversity and lizards. I Shoot, I was grew up in Wisconsin, I'd never seen a lizard in the field before, you know, and I was instantly enthralled or, or you know, excited or interested in the, the change that the deserts have or the, and the change of wildlife and the kinds of wildlife that you see. And um, got the job at Joshua Tree. Um, 11 years now I've been in, in Joshua Tree. For about three or four of those years, I worked more on the vegetation side and worked with plants and restoration, and then made the switch over to uh, the wildlife. The biologist leading us into the field today is Kristen Lalumiere. Um, I started here in 2004, so I've been here for about 12 years now. And I initially got started in the National Park Service through Student Conservation Association. Um, after college, I traveled for about a year, and then I started with SEA, and that gets you such great field experience. Uh, I actually started uh, with SEA at Pinnacles National oh, okay. Now Park. I worked with California Condors for a year, and then I came down here for a seasonal position, and I'm here 12 years later. So it just kind of morphed into a permanent position, which I'm entirely grateful for. Yeah. And um, so it was great. It was inter very interesting. We're going from tracking condors to tracking tortoises. Yeah. So just yeah. a little bit different. 
Joshua Tree National Park is a special place. It is a highly visited park with millions of visitors every year, given that it is literally less than a three-hour drive from downtown Los Angeles. But it's also great habitat for desert tortoises, among many other species. So Michael explains to us why it is such an important area for the desert tortoise population. Right now we're probably looking at about 200,000 acres um, from left to right and all the way back to the Coxcomb Mountains back there of wide open pristine habitat. It's, it's only bisected by one road, which is the road we're on, and a couple of dirt roads, which are seldomly driven. You know, in my eyes, it's less than 1% impacted by all the roads and all the things. So basically, this whole basin is for naturalness. It's for the plants, it's for the animals, and it's for our tortoise, too. So, and the land use of that area will be the same in decades to come for the preservation of future generations, right? So, you know, I think what I generally tout is we have some of the highest quality tortoise habitat in the Southern California deserts, and it's the best protected land as well. So that's why Joshua Tree is really special for the desert tortoise, is that it is kind of this um, refugia for the tortoise. If you've never seen desert tortoises, they're a really cool looking animal. The best way I can describe them is as a prehistoric reptilian tank with feet like elephants. They are famously slow movers, but are also considered to be something of a charismatic megafauna, a species that many people find it easy to relate to and care for. The desert tortoise, interestingly enough, is the state reptile of California. So, you know, many years ago when it was first named that, it was found to be very charismatic. It's a very neat species that lives out here um, in our Southern California deserts. So it's, it's basically a, a desert uh, tortoise in the fact that it is restricted to the desert. They don't live in coastal areas or anything like that. So, um, But like I said, they're a very iconic species in the desert. When you think of Southern California deserts, people tend to think of the Joshua Tree and the desert tortoise. They're very rare to find. Um, so when you see one, it's very special. And so throughout the 70s and 80s, though, um, they found out that the Mojave Desert was now um, under threat of development. So people were moving to the desert in big, huge numbers, as well as, uh, you know, more recently, it's been the solar issues, you know, big photovoltaic solar plants on kind of a commercial scale or industrial scale. But they also found that numbers were dwindling. And so then they, they did name the species under the Endangered Species Act in 1994, I believe. The desert tortoise was listed as threatened underneath the Endangered Species Act in 1990. The Endangered Species Act is a pretty strong set of legislation that protects species that are in peril. We've talked about endangered species in the past and will in future episodes. The book called Listed by author Joe Roman is a great retelling of the history, accomplishments, and potential issues of the Endangered Species Act. And so when it did get listed, one of the first thing they come up with is a recovery plan. And one of those, you know, one of the big activities in that recovery plan was to inventory and see what we had. Um, during that time of trying to figure out how many tortoises we had, we did identify um, Mycoplasma agassizii, which is a uh, 
a disease that's hitting the tortoise and it kills them through an upper respiratory tract disease. So basically it, it causes them to have a real bad cold. And this real bad cold, it forces them to lose water through mucus or through other things. And so in a very dry summer, and they will not have enough water in their body or in their urinary tract or anything like that in order to survive. And so we're finding dead tortoises all over the place. The disease is pretty much Pan Mojave. It's pretty much all across the, the Mojave Desert in Southern California. And it's had a population scale or population level decrease. So not just a few tortoises here and there, but actually across a whole range, we've seen this huge um, depression in numbers. And just for example, um, we have some studies that were done in the late 70s and early 80s um, done by a pretty famous uh, tourist biologist out here, Dr. Alice Carl. And she estimated between 30 and 50 tortoises per square kilometer. And um, came back just a few years ago and did similar surveys, but it was found that we only had three tortoises per square kilometer. So when you go from 30 to 50 down to three, um, we as scientists call that an order of magnitude reduction. And, and you can say, oh, it's 10 times less, and you're exactly right. But we kind of, um, as scientists, we put a certain amount of significance to an order of magnitude. And so when you have that kind of a reduction, it, it's, a, it's a really big deal and something we really have to look into. But um, we still see tortoises out here in the desert. We still find baby ones walking around. And we still see, you know, um, adults, you know, breeding and mating and everything like that. So we do have hope that, you know, eventually the, the, number, the numbers will recover, which is typical of disease. Disease comes in and it knocks a whole bunch of them down, but then the survivors are able to eventually repopulate the population. But being tortoises are current very slow breeders and it takes a long time for the little ones to become adult size. You have to wait decades to see any kind of recovery, which is uh, kind of what makes the uh, Endangered Species Act and the plans, the recovery plans, kind of very difficult because it's not a, in a few years you see big numbers again. <laughs> you have to wait decades before you can see numbers um, changing or increasing or even decreasing further. Given the dramatic fall in population, how many tortoises are left in Joshua Tree National Park? We don't go out and count every tortoise obviously in the park that would be difficult so what I do instead is I look at the amount of um, habitat we have in the park and then convert that habitat to square kilometers and then extrapolate from three to see what we have and I want to say um, it's around 6,000 tortoises we expect to have in the in the park now but now if you think about that that means back in the 70s if we have 6,000 today then we would have had, you know, 60,000 back then. Now that's where that order of magnitude thing really comes out is when you see 60,000 to 6,000. You know, that's, imagine a city of 60,000 people all of a sudden being reduced to 6,000. I mean, that would be a huge change. And, um, you know, we are a park of 850,000 acres. Um, it's a very large park. In essence, this park is for is for wildlife and plants and cultural resources and the protection of those things. But what I'm kind of getting at here is that the tortoises have literally free range of all this territory.
Joshua Tree National Park has hundreds of thousands of acres that are set aside for the purpose of protecting land. Protecting land for biodiversity, wildlife health, and the endangered species that live there. This is around the time that we park our cars on the side of the main road, we pack our bags and head out into the open landscape that without the plants could be mistaken for the moon. So Kristen is carrying a large TV antenna looking device and puts a speaker up to her ear as she walks about every 50 meters or so. What she's using is called radio telemetry technology. And Kristen's gonna explain how she listens for tortoises. And as I get closer, as we get closer, what I'm doing is I'm basically swinging the antenna to get more of a directional. Because when it's, when it's the loudest is when this antenna is pointing straight at it. It seems pretty straightforward, but then it helps us hone our, like, fine-tune our direction. We're basically finding a, a needle in a haystack right now. So, and we're cheating. Very large triangle of detection coming off of this antenna. But now that I'm turning that volume and that gain down, it's making this triangle of detection much smaller and allowing us to hone in on him much more. So you can tell the difference, you can hear the difference because this is uh, pointing in one direction and then this is completely 180 so that allows us to tell, or that tells us what direction to go in. So as you get closer to the tortoise, the beep gets a little bit louder and your direction becomes more acute. What the antenna is detecting is something called a transmitter. See the size of the transmitters? We like for this body of the transmitter has to fit on one scoop. Okay. The initial goal of this project was, it sounds like a joke, was to see how fast the tortoises cross the road. And what we were looking at is um, we have areas of the park that are curbed. We have areas of the park that are non-curbed. Tortoises have a hard time climbing up and over the curbs. So they removed a small section of the curb to let the tortoise get on and off the road just a little bit easier. Little notches called tortoise trots, and that was to help with the ingress and egress of a tortoise getting on and off the road. Because they were worried that once the tortoise drops down in the road on that curbing, that it would actually keep the, road, the tortoise in the road longer and um, increase its chance of being hit by a car. So they put in these notches to help facilitate that. So this project was actually for us to go out there three times a week initially to, so that we could put ourselves near the tortoise as they're getting near the road and basically time them and compare the, um, the tortoises that are near the curved roads the tortoises that, that are near the non-curved roads and then the tortoises that are, that are near the, on the dirt roads and just to see how, how different those, those times might be. So we're off walking into the desert and Kristen is way ahead of us with the antenna following the beeps. Every few steps or so she'll stop and listen to it to make sure we're heading in the right direction. She'll course correct left or right. So as you get closer the window narrows so it becomes easier and easier to find the tortoise. Then Kristen all of a sudden stops. Then we come up and meet with her on a rock outcropping. And Michael immediately sees why Kristen stopped. Oh, there he is. There she blows. <laughs> so what I'm looking at right now is the tortoise underneath um, a bush. He's in the shade right now. Uh, it's kind of at the bottom. So to any anybody else, he might look like a rock. But he's a little bit rounder and smoother than any of the other rocks around here. So that's why he kind of popped out to me. This tortoise is unusual. 
not only because its name is Ma Deeb, but because it even has a name at all. They'll explain why they chose to set up their project this way. We have an unusual naming system for our tortoises. A lot of biologists don't name their tortoises, but we do, just because some of our tortoises have been with us for since the beginning. We started in 2005. Yeah, and the naming thing kind of comes from, uh, we had a little bit of a contest. Uh, if you um, found a tortoise um, out on our surveys for, for getting them transmittered or put transmitters on them, then you got to name the tortoise. So it's kind of like a game that, you know, kind of gotten people involved. So we even got law enforcement um, folks involved when they're driving the roads. They would see one. They would call in and say, hey, we got a tortoise here. And then kind of like I said, the carrot was that they then got to name the tortoise. So we do have a bizarre array of names. Um, this from characters from the Big Lebowski movie. We have three or four of those. Um, so we have the dude. We have Walter. And uh, so, and then it goes to, you know, just people's favorite little name for him. Oh, Joaquin or um, Maudib came from a sci-fi film called uh, Dune, Dune, or book, mm-hmm. I should say. Because so, he, he's more out in the, in the a dunes. little bit the sandier <laughs> yeah. part of things. So, so it, it's, you know, like what Kristen said, you know, a lot of scientists name them like, oh, this is Taurus 6148 or something like that. Um, we did want to make it a little more... Um, personable to people to even help us out so they got to name the tortoise and uh, lo and behold within a year or two we had you know we went from two tortoises transmitted up to I think almost 10 that year so it really did work and we we're quite pleased with it so so back to the action Kristen finds a safe flat area near where we found Maudib and carefully places him on the ground in front of her gear she and Michael then proceed to process this tortoise so we have, the, we have the tortoise on the ground in front of us. He's just sitting there. He's not walking away or moving or anything like that. Um, all tortoises have different personalities. You, you get, you'll get some that you have to put on an overturned coffee can um, just because they'll do this swimming motion to get away. Um, but this guy, this tortoise is actually named Madib, and he's been tagged for, I think, about five years now. And right now he's all, he pulled all the way in. This is their defense posture because they have really tough scales on the front of their legs um, and they can pull tightly in and so it's really hard to get them out of their shell this way. So what we're going to do is we are actually going to weigh and measure this tortoise and we've been doing, we do this every time that we replace a transmitter, which is about every 12 to 16 months depending on the time of the year that the the battery is scheduled to expire. And so we just keep track of just how big they grow, how fast they grow, and their weight, which isn't all that important because, of course, it depends on how much water that they have access to. They are literally walking canteens of the desert, and they can carry the water in their system up to a year. Yeah, you can see the males, too, have this big kind of horn in the front they use to uh, try and flip the other tortoise, so they'll interlock and do that, which is kind of neat. But I've learned to tell male from female easier by just looking at the back scale there. See how it almost comes down at a 90 degrees to the ground kind of angle? So we have a string around the tortoise, and then we just pull them up on a, a, on what's called a pasola scale, and this allows us to weigh. 3.3. 3.3 kilograms. So then we are also, now we're using um, what's called um, calipers. 
and they are just simply to take a distance from the back shell, back scoot. Each one of these individual armored sections is called a scoot. And that is 251. And then we do the width. And what would be helpful to check for disease is if he actually he comes out of his shell a little bit. But we look for any um, runniness or any dry crustacean on the front of the nose. We look at their eyes to see how clear their eyes are, see if there might be any cloudiness. We don't do anything with it. We just, we just note it. Um, there's no cure for that disease. Um, some of our tortoises that we've been tracking for 10 years have this, and they're still out there, out and about. So after they assess his health and measure him, they need to replace the transmitter so they can come find him again in the future. I'm actually just going to work on prying the transmitter off of this tortoise. Do delicately. And then it just pops off. Okay. And we pull out the body of the transmitter away from off of the shell. And I, okay, good. I have this new transmitter that's going to go on. And what we want to do beforehand, we want to double test this, even though I tested them in the office yesterday. We want to make sure that we're putting on a live um, transmitter to the tortoise. So that's what the new transmitter sounds like. Up and running. And Michael is getting the new putty ready while I clean off the shell a little bit with a toothbrush, clean it of debris and dirt for the new transmitter. And then I feed the antenna through the existing tubing that we have on the side of the tortoise. We want the, the antenna to actually run alongside the tortoise and not interfere with any of his behavior and actions, such as going in and out of a in and out of a burrow, so we want this antenna to actually be below the profile of his shell. Last thing we want to do is interfere with any mating or <laughs> any movement or get him getting stuck on anything. And it's gray, which is nice because we don't want it to, you know, lose that cryptic ability of blending in with the bushes and the shade and the rocks around it. This day was warm, but not too hot, and we found him sitting under a bush in the shade. He probably laid out in the sun this morning, heated up, and then maybe he got a little too warm, so he went and laid in the shade mm -hmm. for a spell. You know, it's just that kind of a... They are reptiles, so they use the heat to, um, to balance out their own internal temperature. So we're done. This is hardened up. The, the putty that I just put the transmitter on has hardened up. We always kind of stick around to make sure that that sets right. And in this, this is perfect temperature to be doing this in. Not too hot, not too cold. So when we're doing this without the transmitter replacement, when Kristen first found the tortoise with the, the receiver there a good 10 meters away, we would have stopped right there and not approach the tortoise at all. Maybe to get the GPS point, get a little closer, but you try to make it a very quick, oh, got the point, and then you take off. So the, the whole idea of the study is to try to keep them in 
as natural an environment as possible, free of human, you know, interactions. This is the necessary interaction we have to have, though, is to put the transmitter on. So you have to do that in a very basic sense. Um, but uh, given at where we're at in the park, too, there's we're not really close to any hiking trails or anything like that. So we're probably the only humans this guy sees, you know, every year. Given how fragile they are and how slow they move, they can't have too large of a range. But how far can they travel? So they kind of have a huge overall range, but then they also have a kind of a core home range, which is a much reduced. So generally when we do the home range analysis in GIS, um, you know, it kind of cuts out those outliers and it's that core habitat, which, what, what is it, Kristen, by average of 20 some hectares? It's 20 hectares, okay. which is yeah. about two football fields. A little bit less than two football fields is their is their average home range. They're most they're definitely tortoises. More tortoises out here. Um, they have a very good sense of smell, and actually one um, male will overlap several females' home ranges, and they'll actually have several burrows throughout their home range, uh, much like as if a person were to have several apartments within a city. And so these tortoises, they'll go from, from burrow to burrow. Like this guy will know where females' burrows are, so he'll go check those out, see if they're home. But there's definitely a concern there as the population gets too minimal, too low, that they won't find a mate. And uh, we call that the Ali effect. So it's when they go out looking for mates and they can't find them, and they miss breeding opportunities. Um, we feel that we haven't got to that low of level, though, because we frequently see reproduction and mating in the park, so we kind of assume that they do find each other well enough, but um, that was a big concern when they first found that the populations were becoming so depressed, you know, from that 30 to 50 animals per square kilometer down to 3 and 5. It's hard for me to imagine 30 to 50 tortoises per square kilometer. I've only experienced the desert at three to five, really. So they're hard to find. I find them, you know, occasionally. But 30 to 50, I mean, it would probably mean that every time you came out to the desert, you would find one. You would find two. As long as you're in the proper habitat, you'd find them pretty easily. Um, now they're real rare, rare sightings. So they are a rare sighting, but they do know that they are reproducing naturally. How exactly can they know this? Well, we'll catch them in the act. Oh, there you go. <laughs> That's always fun to watch. And yeah, we That's usually sit around and we video the whole thing um, and then, um, you know, report it. But uh, we did put it up on Facebook and it did get a lot of responses. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they obviously can't find every single tortoise to see if they're mating. But what they can do is make assumptions based on the actions that they do observe. Right, so we, we do assume it a lot because we do find our tortoises are breeding that we kind of use as a proxy for the other tortoises. Okay, it looks like they are finding each other, they are having um, recruitment, so we, have, we do find some new ones every year. So, you know, we, we do know that there's some level of breeding happening at the park. What that exactly is, not sure. What is that compared to? Or the big crash in population, we don't know, but um, but we do know that it's happening. Like I said, at least at some level, there there's recruitment and uh, new ones being born, and 
breeding happening. So. Or like we had happen a few years ago, we got this video sent in from some campers who said a tortoise, a female tortoise came up next to their tent, dug a hole, uh, maybe about a foot away, and started dropping eggs in. And it was just right there in the middle of the campground. So we ended up going ahead and shut down that whole wing of the campground just to protect nice. that nest. So um, the only indication that there's babies being hatched is finding a baby. With their small home ranges and low populations, the tortoises have an interesting way to ensure genetic diversity and natural recruitment. But just a quick reminder, as Michael's explaining this, he's working with the putty, so that's the clicking sound you hear in the background. The females can actually store uh, sperm for multiple mates too, and that's kind of a neat little adaptation that they have. So they can have a clutch, and they can have multiple sires from that same clutch, so multiple different males basically have fertilized the same clutch of eggs. So it is kind of interesting that they can store sperm, keep it, and then um, use it when they need it kind of thing. Wasn't there a case, there was, I think it was 16 years, somebody had had a pet female tortoise, and then 16 years after getting her, she actually laid a clutch of eggs. <laughs> and she hadn't been around another tortoise, so that's they were able to determine like what the heck happened. Yeah. But nature is amazing. It's kind of a, I think it's an evolutionary adaptation. You get just more genetics, because as you can tell, you know, tortoises don't have a huge home range, and they'll spend their whole lives within a certain, you know, small area. And so having kind of multiple genetics through the same clutches even increases the chances that next time they breed they won't have, you know, you'll avoid inbreeding. The ability to store sperm from many different males allows the females to lay eggs years into the future, each of them having the possibility to have a different tortoise father, and this can allow populations to survive through rough times. We're now moving on from Mahdi. We put him back in the shade and we make our hike back to the car and drive to our next tortoise's home range, which is bisected by a dirt road. And this is tortoise's name is Honey Badger, which is kind of funny seeing as though there's an animal out there named Honey Badger, which I'm sure most people are familiar with. Um, so what Michael's doing right now is he's trying to get a lead on exactly where um, Honey Badger is within the home range. The thing about the tortoises that we're finding on this dirt road compared to tortoises in other parts of the park, such as on paved roads, is that these tortoises' home range actually incorporate the, the dirt road, meaning that they'll cross this road many times. Whereas what we're finding in our long-term study is that the tortoises that are on paved roads actually really don't cross the roads. They might, we might find them on the road once, and then we might find them, they might cross the road again like another three or four years later. But with these guys down here on this two-track road, they'll just cross it all the time. We actually put out traffic counters on our roads um, in, in areas that we do have tortoises transmitters. But start comparing, like, okay, so this one area gets 300,000 pa car passes in a season and what we're finding in that area is the tortoises actually uh, it's almost like this very invisible um, fence is going down about 200 meters off the road that they don't cross all four tortoises in that area 
that we have transmitted just do not cross that, that line. Tortoises on the roads is an issue, an issue that they have to be aware of and study. So after we do a little bit of searching with the radio telemetry equipment, we find the tortoise hiding in a burrow. This tortoise has been eluding Michael and Kristen. They haven't been able to replace this transmitter for almost two years, so they take some drastic measures and remove it from the burrow. And Michael explains why they're doing this. If we don't find them, like the first time we look for them and they're down in a burrow, we usually leave them completely alone. And we wait to find them when they're out and about. This guy, though, has been overdue for a while now. So the last thing we want is for the transmitter battery to die on the tortoise and still be there, you know. So if we're going to, you know, we'd rather replace the transmitter or pull it off completely. We don't want it running around with that extra stuff on it if we don't need to. So that's kind of a real big deal. And that's why we're both like, yeah, we really want this guy out. Usually we don't, we're not this invasive and don't want to bother it so much. They remove Honey Badger from his burrow, but we're not going to share any of this footage or explain how they did this for the safety of wild tortoises. So we have the tortoise out of the burrow, and what Michael is doing, he's actually sitting with his hand in front of the tortoise because the tortoise is, this one's a lot more active than the last one we had, and he's tending to want to just run off, which kind of sounds funny with the tortoise, but they can move really fast. I'm super excited right now. It's, uh, this is awesome. It means he's still part of our study. We'll get to tr- switch out the transmitter. Um, and like Michael had talked about before, the last thing we want is a tortoise to be running around the desert with a transmitter that's not working. So Michael and Kristen proceed to process honey badger in the same way that they did with Mahdib earlier. They weigh, they measure, and they assess him for disease and general health, as well as replace the transmitter. And when we put him back next to his burrow, he shot back underground at a surprising speed are like little toboggans when they want to get away like if they're sitting at the mouth of the burrow and you're approached that's why we have to be really careful because then they can pull all their legs in and just shoot right down the inside of the burrow and after finishing up with honey badger we talk about tortoises on the roads both in the park and throughout their range we know that we have uh, problems with roadkill it's not a very big problem we think it's probably one or two a year that we do get killed on this road, which is a lot less than other places. And that's likely due to just the speed limit in the park is so slow that most people can drive around them. So if you're doing the speed limit 35, 45 miles an hour, you should be able to hit a tortoise in the road. You should not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you should, should not hit a tortoise in the road. Some. And uh, whereas like the Mojave Preserve or some of these other in- interstates that go through tourist habitat, you know, they're 70 miles an hour. And, uh, you know, people do hit them more, more frequently. Unfortunately, that's on the way at the back road to Vegas. So a lot of people are just wanting to get to their weekend destination. But sometimes when a tortoise gets hit, they live. Adele's a really interesting story. She came to us, I think, is it three years now? Um, I got a call from a lead ranger, lead law enforcement ranger one night saying some a couple had called in. They picked up a tortoise that had been hit on the road and they had taken it down to the visitor center. So I was out eating dinner with friends, packed up dinner, and then we went and got her. She was a full-size adult female and she was completely cracked on the front. You could see all the way in her, so somebody had hit her. 
And so these people had rescued her and brought her down. So we, we took her, I took, kept her overnight and then brought her to work the next day. And then we took her to the vet and he taped her up. And we basically over, was it over summered her in your office? Yep. Yep. Just kept her in the office. Uh, she just stayed under his desk <laughs> and she didn't really even eat or drink. Um, and she just stayed in there to give her time to heal. We would take her back to the vet occasionally. And the reason we did that, we're not an animal care facility, but she was a female of breeding age. So then we were the following that, that August or so, we, um, August, September, we released her. And so now she's out and about and she's doing great. So she was one of our success stories for sure. What is being done to reduce tortoise deaths on the road? So one of the recovery actions that they have for the tortoise is to actually fence the roadsides. So if you go to other places in the Mojave, you'll see that they have this short little fence out there about 50 yards away from the road, and that's to keep the tortoises away from the road. But if you think about it a little bit more, it kind of fragments their habitat. So now tortoises on this side of the road would never have communication with tortoises on the other side of the road. You're purposely fragmenting the, the landscape by doing it, but it's to save tortoises. So, you know, there's other actions you could do. Maybe every once in a while you move the tortoise across the road, but then what happens if all it does is try to go back? So there's a lot of problems with the fencing too, um, not only for the tortoises, but also for um, other critters too, you know, getting stuck in the fencing or, or whatnot, or preventing them from moving too. So it's a heavy-handed action to put in the fencing, and it's really warranted around interstates where any tortoise that gets on the road is going to get smashed. So I-15 through tortoise habitat is almost all fenced. Um, they have come up with ways to provide egress, so basically provide a way for them to get to the other side of the road through a culvert. So the fencing will come to a point and there will be a culvert under there, and then they can go through the culvert to the other side. So um, there are some of those actions happening. We did consider it for this park of putting in a fence. Now, obviously, a lot of people did not want any fences put into their beautiful national park. They want to feel that it's completely untouched when you get off the road. And so the study has kind of shown that maybe that fencing isn't really needed. Um, however, we're trying to figure out, you know, what is the roadside mortality? How many tourists are we talking about that we could prevent or mortalities we could prevent by putting up a, a fence? So maybe we can get more um, education out there, more signage. So for example, anytime it rains in the desert, um, all the entrance stations put up a little sign for the tortoises. Um, all of our workers in the park have stickers on their doors other vehicles to look under their vehicle before they move them in case a tourist likes the shade of their vehicle. So there's other things that we're doing to try and protect them rather than, than fencing off our roads. Um, but we wanted to use data, you know, and we always like to point to data. And so that's kind of what I'm in the middle right now and kind of the purpose of this study, um, even though it started as something else, to answer kind of a different question, the, the data is still good and we can still extrapolate other answers from it. We've gotten pictures of people who have, you know, like tortoises crossing the road here. They get out and they play tortoise crossing guard and allowing for the tortoise to move on uh, off the road on its own accord, which we highly advocate. Of course, providing for your safety first um, is the best way to help a tortoise move off the road is let it do it on its own. Michael and Kristen have been working with wildlife for years. Lots of times in places where the field isn't so forgiving, but working with desert tortoises 
is special. Definitely, it's an easy to it's an easy critter to work on because it is very interesting. And uh, for me, it's field biology has always been my thing. Uh, getting outside, you know, and um, I discovered this pretty early on in undergrad, where you know I had classes that were looking through a microscope and, and looking and drawing cells and what they're doing. And uh, took that first uh, field ecology class and kind of knew right away, like, yeah, yep, yep, this is it, this is what I want to do. I want to chase things with binoculars rather than microscopes, and um, yeah, I don't mind getting dirty. I don't mind throwing on the hip waders, well, not here, but hip waders in, in Wisconsin and looking for frogs. I like this. This is what I like to do. And it is grueling to get, to enter into the, the field is difficult. You're going to spend very long days outside. Um, possibly days at a time without showers or the comforts of, you know, of home, I guess. And uh, so you kind of get used to that. And um, for me, it was, um, it was, it was really right, I guess, because I could go outside every day. And it was rigorous, and but yet, um, you know, it was enjoyable for me. It's not for everyone. I can tell you that. Um, it seems really glamorous, and I think for people visiting the park on a weekend, they would say, this is awesome. But what you don't see is the day-to-day, -day, like uh, how it can become tedious on certain things. You have to pay attention to your data and how you're taking it so that it's in a defendable fashion or it's in a, it's taken in a rigorous manner. So there's a lot of thinking stuff that goes along with and not just a walk in the park uh, as you know to say it, it is a little bit more than that so there is a challenging part of the field too there is a, a heavy science component it is not just walking around counting birds and you know finding tortoises and burrows you can you can get data to ask more and more important questions and how you're going to answer those with your data i think it's a wonderful field i really do and um it's a right fit for me. Yeah, I mean, the Southwest here, I mean, it's a biodiversity hotspot of you know, uh, North America. A lot of people don't think that, especially me coming from New England. I always thought desert was just, were just sand dunes and just wide open spaces with nothing. But, I mean, the amount of uh, snakes here and then the lizards and the, the birds, I mean, we're a migratory bird route. So we get a lot of different birds that move through here, insects and all of this. And it's just really, really fascinating. I mean, it, Michael touched on it. The diversity that we have here is just off the charts. And I consider myself lucky that, you know, I can go out one day and I can be doing bat surveys or I can go out and be looking for bighorn or, I, you know, all in one day I can be doing tortoise surveys and look, then looking for tree frogs. And it's just, I think, sometimes I tend to forget that. It's like, oh yeah, we have such wide, vast range here. Um, but it really is, it's really an amazing field to be in. But you know, when you're out there walking around and you get to see their home range and you're like this, like honey badger, like we just had, it's like, wow, he totally moved into a new burrow. Same with Maudib earlier. Do you see their, their changing home range? Do you see any interaction, especially fighting or mating? And it's also just to see how they're flourishing is, is always renews that excitement for me. For me, it's, it's super exciting because a lot of my job now is desk bound. So anytime I get out to do these things, I look for everything. Lizards, birds, and just anything I can 
look at. When I was doing the field work every day of the week all the time, you know, it kind of gets to be grueling and you get a little sick of peanut butter jelly sandwiches or whatever you throw together for lunch. Um, but uh, finding that job balance where you have both is really key. And that's why I really, um, I'm really jealous of like Kristen and the tech, like technician jobs here because they are that balance of outside and inside work, you know, that I no longer can enjoy as much. Um, to be honest though, um, every day you go out in a national park is an easy day and you look forward to it every time you go out, you know, even this morning is like, oh nice, you know, I get to get away from the, the desk and the computer and the internal, you know, park service stuff in around the office and you kind of get outside and just enjoy the clouds and the weather and lizards and whatever else is running around. And, and it helps us remember this is why we're doing it. Yeah. It's like, because we'll get in the office and kind of get bogged down with that. But it's just every now and then we'll be, or often actually, we'll be doing something like today. I'm like, wow, I get paid to do this. There's like so many people, they read about it in documentary, or they watch in documentaries, or they read about it in the paper. And the fact that this is, you know, my life and my job, it's like, it's still, sometimes I'm still a little, I wake up and I'm a little surprised that I'm here in this position. Um, it was never an intention. I had no idea like this positions like this existed. Um, I grew up in New England where national parks are battlefields, but I had no idea. As a lot of people don't know, a lot of like a lot of research like this that does happen behind the scenes in national parks. On February 12, 2016, President Obama created three new national monuments surrounding Joshua Tree National Park, 1.8 million acres of desert habitat that is now conserved. It's fantastic news for the desert tortoise and a victory for conservation everywhere. Producers and interviewers for this episode are Taylor Parker, Austin Parker, and Elisa Renas. All the photos that you can find on our website or Instagram and Facebook at Pelicanus Radio were taken by Taylor Parker. We wanted to thank Michael and Kristen again for their hospitality and willingness to show us around and to fulfill some dreams of seeing and holding wild tortoises. We had a great time and learned a lot. Special thanks to Joshua Tree National Park, the National Park Service, and Cabrillo National Monument Conservancy. So check back in with us next month for our next park to be highlighted. And remember to find your park. <laughs> <laughs>